Welcome back to Streamageddon, the only podcast bold enough to review a TV show based in a beloved, long-standing uh, kind of milestone in fantasy fiction that the two hosts have very little interest in, besides the fact that it is the most expensive television show of all time. And that is very interesting to us here at Streamageddon, but who are we? We are your hosts. I'm Chris Barlow, and I'm joined once again by Diane Nora. How are you doing this week, Diane? Oh, I'm doing great. I feel as confident as an elf, I think. You, Yes, you are the elf herself. I had a lot of rhymes in mind for introducing you, and I stopped myself. I'm going to really try to restrain myself this episode, because you can just, I mean, the names on that show, we're going to get there. The show we're talking mm-hmm. about, in case you don't know which elves we are referring to, it's The Lord of the Rings, colon, The Rings of Power, a, a show that promises several rings multiple times. And no restraint whatsoever. Yeah, that is true. Budgetary or perhaps breadth of plot-wise, there's so much going on, and yet I can't even begin to explain. That's going to be so much fun to listen to, us stumble our way through this, uh, again, beloved uh, historic series. Uh, But this is a whole new story. So even if you are not familiar with the Lord of the Rings universe, like myself and Diane, we hope that there is something interesting here, because we are committing many hours to watching it, so we really hope there's something interesting here. (laughs) And, you know, speaking of things that are interesting, let's do some follow-up. We've been talking a lot recently about uh, the changes in, in particular, children's and family programming on streaming. And the big change, of course, has been uh, HBO Max basically telling children's and family streaming to go drop dead, soprano style, as HBO Max pivots to what they do best, Things dropping dead, soprano style, uh, and that's that's an interesting thread. What it leaves is Netflix and Disney Plus as kind of the unrivaled duopoly of kids and family programming. And what do you do when you're in the unrivaled duopoly of kids and family programming? You bring back the Teletubbies because yes, Netflix has announced that they are uh, rebooting. The Teletubbies, all four of them, Tinky Winky through Poe, are back in a new, refreshed series from the original creator of the Teletubbies, uh, Andrew Davenport. Uh, But this has a twist. The twist is that it's narrated by Titus Burgess from The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. And at least if the poster from Netflix is to be believed, the (laughs) baby in the sun now appears to be wearing a toupee, has just the most unnatural, disturbing head of hair. I was always a little bit frightened of this show, if I'm being completely honest. I'm confused by the appeal, but again, it's it's not for me. I am not the target audience of the Teletubbies, though if anything was going to draw me in, it might be Titus Burgess. You know, I get it, because while uh, I was not the Teletubby generation, my younger sister was the Teletubby generation. And so I did, uh, in, in you know, through osmosis, absorb a lot of Teletubby content in my youth. And I know that if I had a child that age right now, and this popped up as a tile on my Netflix, I'd go, yes, thank God, make the child look at the screen for an hour. Please, Titus Burgess, save me. So I, I see where they're going with this. I'm relieved that extremely hairy infants are getting more representation. It's really important. Netflix, they want you to know everyone gets representation on Netflix from hairy infants to Dave Chappelle. And we will leave it at that as we move on to some more uh, follow-up. This follow-up about, boy, I, I don't know what's our favorite topic of late, the drama at HBO Max and Discovery, or I think my favorite topic, the impending peacockalypse. 
I don't think it's the universe's favorite topic yet. I think the, the streaming universe is still obsessed with the drama at HBO Max and Discovery, but I think the real story is Peacock. No one will believe me. Everyone looks at me and says... <laughs> Get out. But I know that Peacock is where all the action's at. And I am proven right yet again because this week, Days of Our Lives went exclusively to Peacock. This is a huge shift in daytime uh, soap operas. It's a big deal for the two million roughly people who still watch Days of Our Lives. What this says to me is that the folks at Comcast agree with you, Chris, and they think Peacock is where it's at. They are putting their eggs in the peacock basket. They really are. And when asked why they're doing this, they say it's to bolster Peacock. They do not have some like, ooh, kind of shiny PR language around, well, we think that the audience of Days of Our Lives will be best served by a shift to streaming. No, they're like, we want to build up Peacock. And we know that these people are obsessed with Days of Our Lives. And we bet most of them will get over the, the transition to watching it on Peacock. You have a very loyal built-in fan base, so... You do, you do. The show has been on for 57 years, and as the Wall Street Journal points out, was one of the only shows to continuously air new episodes during the height of the COVID pandemic because they pre-shoot so many episodes so far in advance. It is a sight to behold. It's beautiful. Television, perhaps at its purest, which means it's going to streaming. (laughs) I mean, I think uh, 57 years old is old enough to be uh, appealing to Peacock viewers. (laughs) 57 (laughs) years old makes you the target demographic for the CW, if you call back to last week. Uh, So, you know, uh, we'll see how this does. I'll be interested to see what what information we can glean about the success or failure of this move. Because, of course, if it's not successful, uh, Comcast will tell us it's a huge success. And if it is successful, Comcast will tell us it's a huge success. And we will have to gauge how enthusiastic their their huge is when they tell us. Mm, we'll keep you posted. Yes. Yes, we will. Uh, and we would like to now post you with some new news. Yes, we are pivoting from the growing Peacocalypse, now absorbing NBC. Peacocalypse, originally referring to uh, content leaving Hulu. So let's pivot to Hulu, which is still in the midst of its own Peacocalypse, losing next-day NBC content as that migrates to Peacock exclusivity. But there is still content on Hulu. And uh, one very important show that just returned to Hulu this week is The Handmaid's Tale for its fourth—I'm sorry, fifth— season, and they have renewed it for a sixth and final season, and that's going to be it for The Handmaid's Tale, or is it? Au contraire, Handmaid's Tale is ready for a franchise, because all content now is franchise content. That's right. In 2019, Margaret Atwood released a sequel to The Handmaid's Tale called The Testaments, which I have not read yet. I better get reading. Um, I guess I'll still have a few years (laughs) to get that done, and I won't get it done in that time either, let's be honest. But uh, The Testaments uh, will be coming to Hulu. Yes, at some point in the future, which means somebody thinks that Hulu will still exist at some point in the future. So score one point in the Hulu will still exist in the future camp. Exciting news for me. I'm cheering for Hulu. Aren't we all cheering for Hulu? But you know who gets all the cheering all the time? 
Hulu's parent, Disney, and their beloved streaming service, The Golden Child, Disney Plus. And this is a section now in our outline document I've just titled, A Long List of Things Disney Announced or Teased for Disney Plus at Whatever D23 Is. I got so tired making this list, I did not look up what D23 is. It's a thing with the people and the stars, and they show clips, and, you know, a con. It's a con, not the Comic-Con, the D23 con. Disney 2023, I think, Does it stand for the year? Or is it 23 every year? Again, listeners, this is not (laughs) what you come to us for. You come to us to read the list. I know my duty, and my sworn duty is to read to you now a list of Marvel Cinematic Universe franchise properties, uh, either coming to Disney Plus or related to Disney Plus. And this, I want to stress, is an incomplete list because, uh, again, I got really exhausted, and we only have so much time on the podcast. So I'll start with, I think, the headline for a lot of people, Nick Fury in uh, Capital One Presents Secret Invasion. (laughs) This is a series starring Samuel L. Jackson's Nick Fury, who's been the Easter egg in the Marvel Cinematic Universe since Iron Man, uh, in a alien invasion that is secret because they seem to be some kind of shapeshifters, so secret invasion. And that is a series uh, featuring Olivia Colman and Don Cheadle, very exciting, coming to Disney Plus in 2023. The trailer is exciting. Yeah, I mean, I think that my take on all of these trailers was, wow, I love this actor. I don't really care about this story yet, but uh, I love the talent that you're paying for. Yes, again, my notes say, Olivia Coleman exclamation point. Don Cheadle, exclamation point. That's what I took away from the trailer. And Sam Jackson. And Never Sam Jackson, here. all the exclamation points. Uh, but that is not all for the cinematic universe within the cinematic universe that is Nick Fury and his friends. Because uh, no trailer, but a tease for Don Cheadle's own spinoff called Armor Wars. So this is a spinoff of a show that hasn't even premiered yet. Another show coming eventually to Disney+, Plus, but not even in production yet. Filming next year. So that we just got a title card. It says Armor Wars. And if you didn't tell me it was a Marvel Cinematic Universe show with Don Cheadle, I would think it's a BattleBots knockoff. Sure. Yeah, that's a good name for it. Right? I'm just saying oh, but they not took too it. late. Ah, it is too <laughs> late. You're right. Too bad. And, you know, speaking of uh, things on Disney+, Plus, this is something that is not on Disney+, Plus, but refers to a show we've talked about quite a bit on Disney+, Plus, Ms. Marvel. They, there was a lot of teasing for The Marvels, which will eventually be on Disney+, Plus, but that's the next big, or one of the next big, Marvel Cinematic Universe feature films that will get you to the movie theaters. Uh, and it features all the Mrs. and Ms. Marvels, the, the Marvels. That's the title. And uh, that ties into Disney Plus because uh, uh, Disney Plus's Ms. Marvel, Kamala Khan, is very much featured in the footage and panels that they had for the Marvels at D23. And also her family. So we know that there is a lot of Ms. Marvel coming back in the Marvels. That is very exciting to me. Absolutely. Yeah. If they won't give us the sequel we were hoping for, or the season two we were hoping for of Ms. Marvel... At least we have the Marvels. Yes, and I will say, we we have uh, some links in the show notes. A lot of this for the Marvels panel came from Gizmodo. And Gizmodo, their reporter there, did say that that was one of the best clips, essentially, that they saw across the panels. And that was most warmly received by the audience. So there's a lot of good good buzz, I think, from a fan event where they get inundated with a lot of content. And so whatever sticks out, I think, is probably uh, worth paying attention to. 
If you're interested in Ms. Marvel, we did review it. So if you haven't heard that episode yet, look down your feet a little bit and hear us uh, break down Ms. Marvel. That's right. We've done that once. We've done it twice with a rewind review. So just scroll back in your podcast app of choice. Uh, Next, we have another Marvel Cinematic Universe series jumping off from another Marvel Cinematic Universe series. See what they're doing now? It's kind of like an Inception situation. This is Echo, starring Alakwa Cox as Maya, who was introduced in Hawkeye, the Disney Plus series from last Christmas. That is my favorite Christmas movie. I don't really think it's my favorite TV show, but it is my favorite Christmas movie about superheroes. I still haven't watched this one. Maybe this holiday. Wait until the holiday. Maybe we should do a special episode where we revisit it because I actually would enjoy to watch it at the holidays again because unlike a traditional Christmas movie where it's you sit through it for 90 minutes and it's over this being a show you can spread out over the weeks leading up to Christmas and I enjoyed that about its original rollout last year and I, I would enjoy recreating that this year. Let's do it. It'll be like a little holiday advent calendar. Oh, join us. And and listeners, if you have any other suggestions for the Streamageddon first annual holiday advent calendar that we just <laughs> invented, you can email us, podcast at streamageddon.com. We'd love those suggestions. But back to the Marvel Cinematic Universe and Echo, which is, uh, again, starring Maya, but that's not the only tie-in to Hawkeye, no, because Vincent D'Onofrio shows up as Kingpin, and that's not the only tie-in with Kingpin, because he's also going to be the villain in the Daredevil series, which is going to have 18 episodes, but they haven't filmed any of them yet. So again, when is that coming out? And that is called Daredevil Reborn, Daredevil Rebooted, Daredevil He Can Dare Again, again. Born Again, Daredevil Born This Way. He's found Jesus. That's correct. And Kingpin, played by Vincent D'Onofrio. And I just love this kind of new Vincent D'Onofrio kick that the universe seems to be on. I'm like, yeah, we really like this guy. Remember this guy? He's great. He is great. You know who else is great? Like all of the cast of the Thunderbolts movie. And this, again, is going to be a movie. It's not even coming out in 2023, but it's a tie-in to Disney Plus because it is the thing that Julia Louis-Dreyfus has been dipping into Disney Plus series to tease. She showed up in The Falcon and the Winter Soldier to recruit away the knockoff Captain America, who was briefly the real Captain America, spoiler alert, and then he wasn't the real Captain America anymore because nobody really liked that guy. And you were like, ooh, something's going on with him. What's going on with him? The Thunderbolts movie, also featuring David Harbour. Who doesn't love this cast? I love this cast. I will watch it even though I don't, again, it's not, nothing about that concept seems especially fresh to me for Marvel. No, not at all. But that's so far in the future. How can I even sustain an opinion that long? I cannot. I just have to, like, absorb it, let it wash over me, and move on. Because there's stuff coming sooner, like some kind of spooky werewolf thing that is also somehow involved in the MCU and stars Gael Garcia Bernal. That's coming October 7th on Disney+. Plus. So there you go. That does sound kind of new. Yes, which means it'll somehow disappoint me personally, but I'm excited for it. I am too. Uh, he's fantastic. He's such a good actor. So there you go. That is a an incomplete, exhausting, if not exhaustive, list of everything coming to Disney Plus at some point, maybe in the future, according to D23. There's something for everyone. 
There truly is. And that might be the problem. We'll talk about that more when we revisit more Disney Plus shows. But we have uh, some other shows to talk about this week. We're going to get right to it. Our big topic this week is our review of The Lord of the Rings, colon, The Rings of Power. Spoiler alert for the first three episodes of The Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power. As much as I can spoil it based on what I think I understood to be the plot, which I think I was starting to understand by the end of episode three. That feels about right. I would say I am, I think and could very well be proven wrong that I am beginning to understand the plot. I wanted to start, I think, with a fun game. This just sounds like so much fun to me. How many of the characters can you name off the top of your head? Oh, I'm going to do my best. Okay. Here we go. Uh, Ready? Ready? All right. Uh, Galadriel. I got Galadriel. Uh, Galadriel. And Elrond. Elrond, who I wanted to call Elnor for a bit, but that's a different character on another show. There is the, the smith. The Master Smith uh, mm-hmm. is, um, mm-hmm. th- he, his name sounds like an antidepressant. It's Celebrimbor. I have no way to prove you right or wrong on that one. It's something like akin that. to Celebrimbor. Okay, there is Eleanor, who they call Nori, who is one of the Harfoots. The Not Hobbits. The not hobbit are they hobbits though? I, they're like hobbit adjacent. They're, they're I think. hobbit adjacent, I gather. Mm-hmm. And uh, her friend is Poppy. Wow, you know the friend's name. That uh, Nori she's is the great. O- I, I, the only ones in that plot line I know the names of are Nori and like bad news guy who came from the sky. Uh, yes, uh, there's also um, Sadok, who is like the head of the Harfoots. Oh, the and, old man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. He's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would. Th- I think his performance has been a real highlight for me. Um, her parents, one, I think her father's called Largo. Um, I looked that up, and yes, I'm impressed. Okay, that might be, I might be out of those. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. I would have also gotten either Arbuckle, Harbuck, Garbuckle, Halbrid, Halbrid. I can't remember. Halbrand, yeah. yeah. Yes, see, I almost said his name. So I got him. I'm going to take yeah. that point. Mm-hmm. He, uh, he's cool. Oh, and but wait. Um, okay, th- I I have a couple more. I okay, keep, wait, keep going. Wait, um, okay, so um, the woman who the woman, is that's a name. The woman who's in love with the elf is Bronwyn, and the oh, yes. elf who she's in love with is it, also great. His name is also great. That's his name. He's also great. These elves have Ordemir, such fun names. Doramir, Doramir, something Amir, Arendir. Aaron Deer. Aaron Deer. Yeah, he's, he's great. Deer. I, he's my favorite character so far, so I should know better. And the scary, the big bad is Adar. Yes. Durin is the dwarf king guy that Ooh, we yeah. meet. And uh, Durin's wife is Disa. Wow, wow, wow. Did you look this up as you were answering it? You really started Literally to get Literally, no, there. this is my hand. I am impressed. Uh, I am impressed. I did have to, so I, I watched the first episode a couple times. It is, oh, one, I'm impressed that you had the patience for that, because I was about to say it is a show that would benefit from that, but I would never. <laughs> I would never, sir. But no, I, I think the the beginning is dense. 
and they, mm. they, partly on purpose. I've read some reviews that you know point out the beginning really comes from the elves' perspective and is trying to show us that the elves live essentially forever if they're not killed. And so their perception of time is just different than our perception of time. And so the beginning of the pilot gives you like thousands of years of elf and human and Middle Earth history. And through a lot of it, we have the same characters. And so you have to kind of wrap your head around like, I'm not watching one adventure. I'm watching dozens and hundreds of adventures and a war that spans centuries and yes it's still Galadriel through all of these clips but uh she's thousands of years old at this point and so that that actually that part in particular that really dense opening does benefit I think from a rewatch because you're learning so much backstory but you're just you don't even yet quite have the framework if you're not clued in that like hey by the way these elves they live forever yeah um I think that for the Lord of the Rings films the Peter Jackson films that came out in the early 2000s um those are like the third age in the Middle Earth universe and most of this series takes place in the second age. But I think that little beginning part where we saw Galadriel as kids with her brother was like the first age. It's like almost Eden, it seems like, even though even in Eden, kids are mean and they sink your little boat. Yes. And then they all went to war with the first big bad, Mm -hmm. Morgoth, who doesn't even factor into the Peter Jackson movie era at all, except that Morgoth came before Sauron. Sauron was Morgoth's, like, right-hand dude. But Morgoth is the big bad of, like, era one, uh, MCU phase one of the the Lord of the Rings universe. Uh, and, And Morgoth is supposedly defeated by the time we get through the Uh, essentially previously on the entire history of the elves montage and uh, Galadriel is leading one of these elven units that roves Middle Earth trying to make sure that the orcs who are the foot soldiers of Morgoth are all uh, exterminated essentially the the, the war was a a, you know zero-sum conflict Uh, and the orcs are supposedly all gone And at this point, Mm. there's been no sign of them for a long time. And so most of the elven foot soldiers and elven politicians, as we learn, uh, are ready to kind of pack up. They're ready to declare mission accomplished and uh, casually withdraw from the Afghanistan they created, which is not a terrible parallel based on what I understand so far. No, that does seem apt. And also part of the reason that these characters were infuriating I hate Elrond. He's like my least favorite character and he's supposed to be buddy buddy with Galadriel, but like why is he bullying her into what she knows is wrong? It's just I the elves have not really sold themselves particularly yeah, well in this first episode. That why I kind of found the pilot hard is the pilot mm-hmm. is really elf focused and 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 as we've gotten now 3 episodes in, I think we are on the right page about the elves. They're, they are supposedly perfect, but in fact that perfection is a huge flaw and that they have a lot of uh, blind spots. And I think that's on purpose. I think they are exploring that. And so I think we're feeling the right way about the elves. The issue mm-hmm. is they're the stars of the pilot. And so it is a weird pilot to go through uh, where there are only really two plot lines active in the pilot and it grows substantially in the following episodes. But the pilot is basically just Galadriel and the elves 
and whatever's going on with the Harfoots. And that, and, and then there's a little bit of uh, Aaron Deere, but that that hasn't gotten very far in the pilot. So you mostly just sit around and go, boy, these elves, they they seem bossy and rude, and I think that's mm-hmm. on purpose. Yeah, they also seem to be sort of in some ways like the colonizers of this world. Um, yeah, like the backstory they, they also- give us again. If you're not super clear on this, I I wasn't, but the the. The, the elves came and fought this war against Morgoth from their homeland. This Middle-earth is not the elven homeland. There is this other, more perfect elven homeland, and these are the elves that colonized Middle-earth, essentially, and have been patrolling it, enforcing their military might, essentially, on the humans and dwarves and other denizens of Middle-earth ever since the end of the war in order to make sure that, you know, the enemy was fully eradicated they Mm. are the the great power occupying foreign lands what is the name of the one i like again erendir 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 yeah okay he is an elf his plotline has been interesting but so far is almost entirely separate from what's going on with galadriel other than he's i mean they're they're all fighting the same big bad but um you know or they will be soon but uh, so he has been watching over this human town because there are people. There are people in this world. Did you know that before this? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I knew there were humans because some of the, some of the pretty actors in the Peter Jackson movies were playing humans. I, I didn't know. Oh, okay. yeah, yeah. Uh, so there's, there's humans, there's elves, there's dwarves, and there are Harfoot who are kind of like hobbits. Correct. The not hobbits that, again, don't totally understand the difference. And the show wants me to either Google it or not care. And I, I'm waiting to find out. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I've been trying actively to not Google things as I watch these first three episodes. I actually want to be transparent about that, too, because, I, you know, um, we approached this, I think you and I, Diane, mm-hmm. as outsiders to the series. We've seen some of the movies but I'm not really familiar with the source material that well. I can't say I've seen all three movies beginning to end because they're really long and I've seen some of them on TV. Like, I don't know. Um, so the, yeah. I, I didn't want to immediately go down the rabbit hole of, okay, well, explain the entire history of Galadriel to me. Like, well, no, I'm trying to meet this character the way that she's being presented because I think Amazon also wants this show to appeal to more than just the core audience from the Lord of the Rings fandom because that's that's limiting and this show is extraordinarily expensive. So I think they want the broadest audience they can get for it. I think so too. I think this is going to be a hard thing to balance satisfying the super fans and bringing in the people like me who have just no knowledge of this universe. I did read The Hobbit as a kid and I don't remember it particularly well at all. Um, there were lots of descriptions of Hills, um, but I haven't seen the movies. And yeah, and, and we went in blind because there are many people like us perhaps who think like, is this for me? And I would say... Stick with it after three episodes. I I think I'm gonna keep watching. Yeah, I, I would actually say it took me a week to watch episode two after episode one because episode mm-hmm. one was so dense. I struggled a bit with episode one at first, but episode two really picked up the pace, and I went straight into episode three. And then it was like two a.m. because these episodes are all over sixty minutes each, and so I paused in the middle of episode three and finished it the next day. But the momentum picked up enough in two that I got I got into it, and I wanted to 
to keep going at the end of the episode. So um, I think there's a risk that people will watch the pilot and the pilot's slow and dense and they will bounce after the pilot. And I would say at least give it to the end of episode two to see if it picks up uh, for you. I think Amazon might have realized that because they did release episodes one and two together and now the Mm -hmm. show's going weekly. Uh, I don't know if that's the reason, certainly, but I can feel that. And definitely... Uh, it's getting more interesting and the characters are beginning to become more clear because the cast is suddenly spread out a lot from the two main stories in the pilot suddenly everyone's kind of thrown to the wind and I feel like I'm following six stories sort of like we've been thrown into mid-season five of Game of Thrones we are just literally following a map from like one island to another island to another coast and here we are back in the Southlands and now we're going over to Numenor and uh, that's a lot to juggle but they've gotten me there pretty quickly and even though I cannot name all the characters, I'm beginning to understand them better. And in particular, the important ones, like Galadriel, I, there were some moments in the third episode where she seemed a little mischievous. And mm-hmm. so far, she, the only emotions I could ascribe to her are like bitter and stubborn. Mm-hmm. And so to see her crack a smile and look a little mischievous in the third episode, I, I that got me excited again. I was like, great. So we're warming up to these characters. We're beginning to see them for more than just these stoic archetypes. Yeah, though I do find the archetypical nature of this show to make it a little easier to understand. At first I was like, oh, this is so dense. I'm not going to be able to figure this out. And then I was like, well, part, part of the thing is that because... Uh, Lord of the Rings was such a huge deal culturally. Lots of other things have ripped it off. So if you've seen kind of any fantasy series, they're taking bits and bobs from Lord of the Rings. I mean, so I was like, oh, yeah, this feels a little derivative in the pilot, but actually it's not. (laughs) Everything else is. Um, And it's, you know, it's good versus evil. It's very Christian. It's very, you know great adventure story but like of that classic hero arc it seems like it seems is what like. they're taking us. but with some it's, shades of of political intrigue that are maybe a little more modern uh and they I mean, haven't quite played that through yet but definitely the uh, elf plot in the first episode has some mm. nice political backstabbing so to speak uh especially around with elrond and then in episode three the scene that got me the most excited is a scene where the queen of Numenor, which is an island full of like super chill humans who have prospered and flourished kind of separate from society. Uh, She walks in to this tall, dark castle tower and you realize she's talking to someone and she goes, it's happened. The elf has come. And you realize like, oh no, the queen, she, she who was ex- kind of skeptical of the elf to begin with, and you're like, well, these people, they don't seem to like the elf. She knows more than she's letting on. And there's some kind of big, intriguing elf drama in Numenor. And I got excited again, because I was like, oh, there are people concealing secrets. By episode three, it did feel like all of our major plots had ended on a nice cliffhanger for the next episode, which was satisfying for me because it tells me that the show is not just trying to be a really long movie. I feel like lately so many TV shows are like, look, it's it's, you know, as good as a movie. And as someone who really likes TV as a form and a format. I I don't want it to feel like a movie. I want my movies to be movies. Um, You know, this is something I complain about with Marvel a lot. I feel like this 
is starting to feel more and more like a TV show in a way that made me happy. Yeah, at the very least, it seems like they structured it like one really smartly. And I mm-hmm. do think there's a difference here with compared to like a Marvel series, because a Marvel series is part of a much larger cinematic universe of ongoing movies and TV shows and tie-ins and other properties. The Lord of the Rings is the most expensive TV show ever made with currently like no successor spin-off or other movie it's going to drive you to it needs to be successful somewhat on its own it may never recoup the 750 million dollars it cost to make that's not the point but the point is it needs to last longer than just one season it needs to have some staying power and so i think they are very intelligently Uh, rolling out what's going to be a long, sprawling story that they intend to take many seasons instead of what's been really typical with the Marvel series, which is these stories that start with the tropes of television, but then uh, kind of pivot back to the structure of a movie halfway through their season and do not set up any continuous story the way a good TV show churns through cliffhanger after cliffhanger after cliffhanger. And even though you know they are just going to give you another cliffhanger at the end of that episode of The Americans, you are still waiting for that cliffhanger and you are excited when it comes. Absolutely. And I... I do think on that front, it seemed like each episode was progressively better. So, I, yeah, I, I'm kind of excited to see what's going to happen. There also were some genuine jump scares for me. Uh, I, I was very scared. Um, there's a character, Bronwyn. Bronwyn is uh, the love interest of Aaron Deer. And um, she has... A Her son, up to no good. She has relic. a son, yeah. <laughs> I don't know yeah. about that relic. Yeah, her her son has a relic that seems to have the sigil of Sauron on it, which now we think is actually not a sigil. It's it, a map. It's a map. Big national treasure vibes in that moment. It's mm-hmm. a map. <laughs> okay, there are way worse vibes to have the national treasure vibes. No, I almost I, like, I almost squeezed in a National Treasure story earlier in the news segment because there is a National Treasure series coming to Disney Plus, but that's not part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, so we'll table it. We'll table it for another day. Can't wait to review that. Please give me an excuse to watch. Yeah, her son is up to no good with this with this sigil and he there is some horrifying creature traveling through the grounds of the Southlands building tunnels. Is that... With the orcs. The orcs who Mm. we thought were extinct, but of course Galadriel knew better. Galadriel knew they were rebuilding out there. Uh, And sure enough, they're rebuilding out there, and the reason that it's been undetected is because they've been rebuilding in tunnels underground, because apparently orcs are like vampires and the sunlight hurts. Cool. That's better than the vampires in, uh, what is that universe where they just get sparkly? Where they get sparkly? The Twilight universe? Do they exactly. get sparkly? <laughs> sparkly. That's the one. No, these, these orcs, they do not get sparkly in the sun. They get all peely and, and sizzly. Overall, the visuals on this show, I think, were really outstanding. But the orcs look a lot like dudes in orc costumes. Yeah. I don't know if that's bad or good. I don't either. I like that there's, um... 
Well, there's two things to say here. One, the digital effects are amazingly well done, and there's been a lot of critique around some shows having mediocre digital effects lately with a lot of crunch in the VFX industry. Um, mm. That's one thing. But the other thing is they seem really committed to doing as much practical stuff as they can. And so the orcs are all very practically done. They're not these goofy CGI orcs in the background. They are kind of Walking Dead style, people in crazy orc makeup, uh, making a horde of zombie-like creatures. And you'll either like that vibe or you will find it, like Diane said, like it's a bunch of people in orc costumes. Yeah, I mean, I think that it might just be a lot of new creatures for me that I every time I see one of the new creatures, if it's not jumping up and scaring me, which sometimes it was successfully, I'm thinking, well, well, that's a little a little bit silly. The mm-hmm. worm creature that uh, scared Galadriel's ship. That, to me, I was like, oh, is it Dune sea now? Worm. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Sea Worm. That was yeah. a little silly. Yeah, I don't know about Sea Worm. And then there was, like, Scary Pig. Oh, the Warg. I yeah, liked the, the Warg. The, the Warg was terrifying. The Warg was fine. But, you know, pick and choose. How many scary animal creature monsters can you add per episode? Agreed. Yeah, it yeah. was a bit much. It was, yeah. I think that probably... A hundred of the 700 million is just, you know, <laughs> scary creature wargs. budget. Wargs. Just wargs. Just well, wargs. listen, some people are saying that they should have spent that much on the dragon budget on House of the Dragon because there have been some complaints about the quality of the dragons. Interesting. I mean, I think that's fair. I think that I did notice how much brighter this show was than Game of Thrones. For the most and part, I think yeah. Part of the reason they're able to have so many scenes lit. Is that because uh, because they have the budget to make for lights? <laughs> because they have the budget for like no, somebody they called have the David Zaslav. The Tell CGI him. good. <laughs> I think part of the reason Game of Thrones is so dark is because they don't want you to see how messy it is. You might be right about that. Actually, there was so I, I did want to bring in House of the Dragon because the natural comparisons going on right now are between Lord of the Rings, the Rings of Power, and Game of Thrones, the House of the Dragon. It's the war of the long-titled, obnoxious fantasy shows uh, that that had to come out at the same time. Even though I feel like they didn't, and I don't know why these two networks were. Determined to go head to head on this when both shows only run like 10 weeks, and if they just overlapped a bit, I think they would compete less. I, I find it weird that they deliberately chose to compete so closely in the streaming era where the drop date is not so important. It's not like you need to drop on the same day that Law and Order premieres because Law and Order is your lead in on NBC. Like, no, you could pick a date. Anyway, right. anyway. Uh, the comparisons are many, and we're not going to touch on all of them, but the graphics and the visual style is a really great starting point, because uh, uh, House of the Dragon had an oopsie recently. King Viserys is supposed to be missing two fingers due to cuts and wounds and things from sitting in a spiky throne, and uh, they do this through a green screen technique. They forgot to green screen out his fingers in a scene where he's handing a paper to somebody, and so he just has two green fingers. Sloppy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do think, I mean, I think as a very broad comparison to House of the Dragon, this show is better. This show is just so much better. Oh, it, the writing the is better. The acting is better so far. It's more interesting, I think. It seems more original. Uh, th- 
In a way, even though it is leaning on a well-known property, it is very mm. original because this is not a book that was written by Tolkien. This is based on the overall history that Tolkien wrote and his notes and his other books and stories. But there is no The Rings of Power novel. This is fleshing out the existing universe he created. So even though it is a direct spinoff, it is also a completely new story. And so I agree that there is something really fresh and original about this, especially and partly because I'm an outsider in some ways to the Tolkien universe, but it does feel more original than House of the Dragon, which is a curious difference to draw, I think. House of the Dragon feels like uh, Game of Thrones light. And this feels, I mean, maybe for super fans, this will feel like Lord of the Rings light, but it feels very dense. So I... I I would yeah. be surprised by that comparison, but... I, like I, I said before, they ramped up the number of plot lines and locations we're following uh, to a Game of Thrones, peak Game of Thrones season five level, where we are just jumping around all the time in three episodes, and I am not lost. I don't know everyone's mm-hmm. name, but I am not lost. And I am hooked in some way for them to keep showing me more and more. There's kind of a a virtuous cycle. When Game of Thrones was at its peak, you felt like you were following all of these interesting people who were each part of a larger tapestry, and they might not interact with each other ever, but that didn't make it feel unrelated. And that each episode pushed each of those stories forward just enough and left you with just a good enough cliffhanger that you felt satisfied. And that worked really well, until it didn't, but that worked really well. And so it's a sweet spot to be in. And for comparison, House of the Dragon has one story. Maybe two if you want to count, like, the war against the crab feeder. But that's more just a piece of the main story. There is just one plot that we are following on House of the Dragon. And so I think to call it Game of Thrones light is right. Um, And it has time. It's obviously intended to be around for many seasons, so they could sprawl and add more plots and more characters with, uh, you know, different locations to go investigate. But one, they are in the era of peak dragons, so they can kind of fly around and cut distance really quickly, which is something they couldn't do during the heyday Mm -hmm. of the Game of Thrones stories. So that, that kind of undercuts the ability to spread out whereas lord of the rings doesn't have dragons who can like zip you around really quickly so when people get spread out you know they're going to be spread out for a while it's not easy to get from place to place uh and and so i i agree that this just feels more promising right now yeah i also think that the cast overall is just really strong i there's no actor in the bunch that is standing out to me as a weak link yet there's also no real obvious star i mean it seems like In the pilot, they're setting it up to be Galadriel's story, and eventually she becomes Kate Blanchett, right? So I'm on that. I'm on board. But uh, the whole range of of characters now, it seems like we have four or five leads that we're following. We've got Galadriel, and now she's been paired up with uh, Halbred Halbach. Halbrand? Halbrand. Holborg. And he, at first, is like a swarthy sailor person who finds her when she is lost at sea. She is uh, being sent back to the elven homeland for successfully defeating the the, uh, orc menace. They basically do a George W. Bush-style mission accomplished send-off for the elves who bravely defeated the orcs and send them back on their boat to the homeland. And Galadriel has seen evidence that the orc menace has not been fully defeated, and the politicians 
stations are shutting her down. And so when she's on the boat back to the homeland, she has a crisis of conscience and she jumps off the boat. And I remember thinking at the end of the first episode, but where will you go? You're at sea. How far can Mm -hmm. elves swim? But that question was swiftly answered in the second episode by her getting picked up by a bunch of sailors. And then they go through a bunch of trouble. And you don't really know who they are yet. Are they friend? Are they foe? And just her and Holborg, uh, Halbred, get saved. And I'm not kidding. I cannot keep his name straight. But they get saved. it's Halbrand. 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 If you break it down, Halbrand. Like a brand of Hal's. Halbrand. Uh, Halbrand and Galadriel. See, now I get his name right. I'm going to start screwing up her name. It's a difficult show for names, but I'm following Mm it. Uh, They get picked up by some other boat, and they wind up on this island I mentioned before, Numenor. And Numenor, in the ancient times, had a relationship with the elves, but it has been centuries since they did, and they have not allowed elves. And so it's a big deal that this sailor brought back the elf he found lost at sea with this dude, this human dude. Everyone else pays no mind, basically, because it's an island of humans. And yes, this human's an outsider, but they're like, you're a dude. We know what dudes are. They're all freaked out about the elf. Except Galadriel figures out, and I think this is true, that Halbrand Halbrand, is the king of the part of Middle-earth, the Southlands, that seems to be getting invaded by the orcs right now. And that it seems that the reason he was at trouble and at sea and lost with these people was because they were fleeing the orc invasion that we are following in Arendir's plot in the Southlands. Yeah, I couldn't tell if he's ever taken the throne as king of the southlands or if he's like destined to be yeah it it was a little unclear about that but um uh, i agree that it seemed it it seemed like that's where like that was not a red herring that he really is yeah and i thought it was well revealed too it was over the course of i think episode two and three we're in the second episode uh Galadriel asks the men on the boat, who is your king, or, you know, who who is your, do you have a king? Something about, who is your king? And mm-hmm. Halbrand responds like, uh, I do not have a king. He's the king. And she figures that out, and she reveals it in this smirky moment where I begin to see the mischievous little elf inside of Galadriel. Uh, he's locked up in jail because he got into a street fight. And, of course, now she's framing it as, yes, you can't, you can't live amongst these people because you are destined to go back and defend your land. But the twist is, he is a descendant of the bad humans who uh, allied with Morgoth in the Great War. And so he is supposedly a blood enemy of the elves, but... But they seem to be hinting that we have like an odd couple, like a Mulder Scully kind of pairing here. The the dry scientific elf and then the troubled emotional human king. Yeah, and they're doing that pairing as well with Arendir and Bronwyn. He is an elf and she is a human from the human town who also sided with Morgoth. Yeah. So, Which is uh, part of the reason that the elves have been hanging around patrolling Middle-earth for so long is because it th- this part of the country, so to speak, they, they didn't side with the elves in the Great War against Morgoth. They sided with Morgoth. And again, this was centuries ago, so these people are all descendants of those people. And th- some of them, as we see in uh, some scenes in the pilot, do not like that they are constantly patrolled by these suspicious elves who think that that they're all bad people because their ancestors did bad things. And they don't spend a ton of time in interrogating that dynamic, but I thought it was really interesting for them to bring it up and make it part of the, the backstory of the elves preparing to leave 
uh, Middle Earth because it did remind me of some very real things from reality. You know, you mm. can certainly imagine many cultural debates about people saying, why should I have to pay for or forgive things my ancestors did? I didn't do them. So there was something really kind of very surprisingly relevant about some of the themes the show is investigating. It reminded me in a very... Str- un- not strange, but unexpected way. It reminded me of Battlestar Galactica, uh, which came out during the Iraq War and and posed all of these questions about, you know, are you in the right just because you feel you're being persecuted by a, a force that you cannot stop? Uh, th- there's a lot of interesting dynamics at play. And I will say, in the pilot, I wasn't sure how self-aware they were going to be about it. I remember texting you during the pilot that it's the, the elves, again, give off this creepy Master Race vibe in some of the scenes, mm-hmm. and it is hard to want to root for them. And then the show goes, I know. I know it's hard to want to root for them. They're not all perfect or good. They have their own really troubling interests. And in that way, it actually reminded me of the Watchmen reboot, uh, which I really appreciated, where you take like um, a niche but beloved uh, piece of mythology and kind of interrogate its politics We'll see how far Lord of the Rings is willing to push on that. They've already gotten some pushback. We talked I was last about week. to say. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I, I'm interested in it. I hope they keep leaning in that direction. Um, yeah, listen, you know. you're going to get the pushback from the trolls and the haters if you even hint at that direction. So if you're going to hint at it, you might as well go for it because you're not you're going to lose those people regardless. But if you're willing to go do something really interesting, you could win a lot of new fans who weren't expecting that, I think. That's true. And you're going to lose those people in the sense that they're going to write nasty things about you online, but they're still going to watch. I bet you. Yeah, because they want to be up to Those people with the elf tattoos, they're going to watch. Yeah. Yeah, they need to know exactly why they hate you. They really do. So I think I think it's kind of a smart strategy, and I hope they continue to lean into that. Um because I, yeah, I, part of the reason that some of this high fantasy stuff hasn't always appealed to me as a genre is because it seems like it's not engaging with uh, the politics of its time necessarily, um, or at least not consciously engaging with the politics of its time. Uh, so the fact that it seem this seems to be more interested in that as a series, I was like, ooh, okay. I, I'm getting the same encouraging vibe as the series picks up, and I'm definitely going to keep through for the entire first season, which is going to be eight episodes, airing weekly on Amazon Prime Video through October 13th, and I have a feeling we're going to do a rewind review after the se- season wraps, because I'm curious to see if it uh, meets these lofty ambitions that we are ascribing to it. They did not necessarily come out and, and tell us that this is what they're going for, so let's see if we're right. Yeah, I'm going to watch the first season for sure. I'm in. I'm in too. Are you in, listener? Tell us. Send us an email, podcast at streamageddon.com, or leave a comment uh, and rate and review us on your podcast app of choice. You can also tweet at us. I'm at I am Chris Barlow, and Diane is at Diane Nora. Uh, we want to know what you think of Lord of the Rings, colon, the Rings of Power. Are you watching both it 
and House of the Dragon. What's your preference right now? Are they scratching the same itch or different itches? I'm curious if they wind up going in different directions enough that they feel different enough and good enough to stand on their own. Right now, I would agree with you, Diane. I am enjoying the Rings of Power much more and in a way that reminds me of what I loved about the original Game of Thrones, which is not so much the high fantasy setting as it is the uh, deeply complicated and sprawling storytelling that remains engaging. Let's see. Maybe that's not what people are interested in. Maybe we'll find out that what they're really interested in is dimly lit dragons. They may be. They may be. They they love that violence. <laughs> oh, don't we all? And we always love violence here on Streamageddon. So please spend some time getting really violent with your favorite remote control as you try to coax it to open the streaming app of your choice. Because that's the only kind of violence we condone while we keep streaming. <laughs> <laughs> 